You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Okay, I'm going to call everyone back to their seats. If you want to head back to your seats, that'd be great. Uh, if you have kids aged up through second grade that you want to have join the kids' ministry, you can meet Karen in the back. Karen, do you want to raise your hand? So if you have any kids up through second grade that want to go join Karen, Jack and Jude, I see you too. Those are my boys. Thank you. Um, if you want to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, that's where it'll be. So Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like one, we have some hardback black Bibles over here. Feel free to grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you, so take that home with you and keep that. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Uh, you're going to be on page 300, or sorry, 977 in the hardback black Bible. So that's Ephesians chapter 3. We're in verses 1 through 13. Today's text in Ephesians is the most personal that Paul gets throughout, his let, throughout this letter. So throughout the letter to the Ephesians right here, this kind of, we get to know a little bit more about Paul's kind of heart for them. And as we continue in our series called Foundations of Faith, Death to Life in the book of Ephesians, right here, we're going to kind of get under the hood, so to speak, and get into the mind and the motivations of Paul, who is the author. And our text begins with this phrase, you'll hear it when I read the text in a moment, for this reason, which is a phrase that Paul uses to introduce prayers often. He does so back in chapter 1, verse 15. He's going to do it again in verse 14 of chapter 3 before he offers the final prayer here in this beginning section. And our passage begins with that phrase, for this reason. It's almost as if he had planned to tell them his prayer for them right here following this verse, but then he gets a little sidetracked. He starts to talk about some of his motivations and his desires for them, and so he gives this little kind of discourse on what he wants for them, what his desires are. That's where we get that kind of personal element. And in seeing Paul's motivations today, I think we can all learn from that, and we hopefully even will adopt some of the aspects and some of the characteristics of his own motivations, his own mentality uh, as he is writing to these Ephesians. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, I will read and you can follow along. <clears throat> and it says this, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel." Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with, with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you 
which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, go ahead and grab a seat. Let me pray for us. So, Father, we ask for your help right now. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us, your people. Here, even as Paul uses this language of mystery and revelation, we thank you, God, that you have revealed to us the mystery in Christ through your word. And so we're asking for your help right now. We know, God, that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will last forever. And so as we open it and study it together, God, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we might behold the wondrous things found here in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm curious, maybe by a show of even hands, when you hear words like mission and evangelism, who here begins to feel a little bit intimidated or even uncomfortable? When you hear people talk, I see here at least some nods. Maybe you're not ready to raise your hands right now, but I see some nods. Um, maybe when you hear people talk about living on mission or living like a missionary, who maybe gets overwhelmed or even feels a little anxious about those things? Well, let me just confess, like, you're not alone. I feel that with you. Several people here acknowledge that as well. Um, I want to lead us as a church well in living on mission, and I often feel guilty that I'm not doing it well enough. And so I just want you to know I'm with you in this. And I think there's several reasons that why we might feel like this. Some of them good and natural. Others, maybe we can help correct some of them today. Some of them are just products of our cultural moment. Others, them, the result of bad theology. Some of them just the result of our own apathy and maybe neglect of the mission, and so maybe we feel a little guilty at times. But today, I am hoping that we can learn from the mentality of Paul, and as a result, we can live like he does on mission, like with the way that he kind of sees mission in his own mind. David Loveless, in his book called Dynamics of Spiritual Life, says this about our evangelism. He says, the style of evangelical Christianity, which is constantly pushing and forcing people toward conversion in order to get them regenerated, manipulating them with music, repeated invitations, or a sort of sales routine, is an ugly deformity of Christian practice resulting from bad doctrine. It is uncomfortable, both for those who feel responsible to do it and for those who are the objects of concern. Now, he's going to go on to say that he actually wants us to be gospel proclaimers. So he's just trying to correct the bad theology we have behind this. He goes on to say, this kind of pressure is better than hiding the gospel. He wants us to reveal it. And it continues to be blessed by genuine conversions through the grace of God. But we should move away from it without lessening our efforts to proclaim the gospel in a more gracious way to those who do not believe. Here's what Loveless is saying. Evangelism that feels manipulative and maybe like a sleazy sales pitch will be uncomfortable for both us and the people that we're sharing with. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't proclaim the gospel. We should ask, is there a better way? Is there a different way? Inherent in the gospel is the need to share it. It is good news after all. And news is not good if it's not known. And I'm not even saying that there aren't going to be some challenges. For example, Paul right now is a prisoner as he writes this letter because of his own proclamation of the gospel. But I do think we can learn from Paul's mentality. And as we do so, we can address some of the ways our bad theology makes this mission sometimes so awkward and intimidating. And so the hope I have for us, this is the message of the sermon, is I want us to adopt the mentality of a gospel-centered missionary. 
Paul here is a gospel-centered missionary. I want us to adopt the mentality. And the reality is we're not Paul, right? Our calling is not his. We know that that's, that's true. We're not in the same place, but we can learn from his way of thinking. And we can adopt some of these qualities and apply them to our own lives, to our own calling, to our, our own day and age. And so we have four qualities of a gospel-motivated missionary that we want to adopt, and they form our outline today. First, we are not our own. The second is that we know the mystery. Third, we make the mystery known. And fourth, we live with confidence in God's love. So first, we are not our own. A gospel-motivated missionary recognizes that they're not their own. Paul himself sees himself as a servant of three different things that he lists here in our passage. The first is Jesus, the second is the gospel, and the third is people. We see the first in verse 1 when he says that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Have you ever ever noticed that language, that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus? Have you ever thought of yourself as a prisoner of Christ? Even that language, I think, feels a little bit disarming for us. To the best of our knowledge, Paul is writing this letter actually while he's in prison in Rome. And as Paul mentions his imprisonment, he doesn't say that he's a prisoner of Rome, but that he's a prisoner of Christ. And what Paul's doing here is he's using his literal imprisonment to Rome as an analogy for his imprisonment to Christ. What he's saying is he's no longer his own. He lives under the command, the rule, the reign, the direction of Jesus. The second person or or, or people that he is a servant to Um, is the gospel. It's the second thing he's a servant to. When he says in verse 7 that he was made a minister of the gospel, the word for minister here is diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon from, and it means a servant of a master. To be a deacon or a minister, as our Bible translates this, of the gospel, it means to be a servant of the gospel. Paul sees himself as someone who is bound to the message of the gospel, That in knowing and believing this glorious truth, he has now become a servant of it. The gospel is not, as we often say, it is not just good advice to make foolish people wise. It is not just moral laws to make bad people good, but it is good news to make dead people alive. And Paul has come to know this wonderful news, and he is bound to proclaim the message. So Paul is not his own. He is a prisoner of Jesus, a servant of the gospel, and third, he suffers for the people to whom he is writing, which is what he says in verse 13 at the end of our passage. He says, do not lose heart over what I am suffering for you. Paul sees his imprisonment and the suffering that he's experiencing as a direct result of the work that he's doing for these people. He's a prisoner because of his ministry. And the church in Ephesus and the kind of region surrounding Ephesus, Paul spent more time there than anywhere else in his missionary journey. His imprisonment is a result of his ministry to these people, but he's not bemoaning his suffering. He's not lamenting his imprisonment. He's not complaining. In fact, he's actually worried for them. He's telling them, don't be worried about me. Don't be concerned about me. He is suffering for their good, or as our passage says, for their glory, And because of that, he is happy to suffer for them. A gospel-motivated missionary does not see their life as their own. They recognize they don't live primarily for their own interests, for their own desires. They live for something beyond themselves. And in particular, we see three here from Paul. For Jesus, for the gospel, and for others. And when we live for ourselves, though, if we think about the opposite side of this, if we live for ourselves, it can have two very different impacts on the way that we approach mission. 
The first is that it can make us apathetic to the mission. It can make us neglect the mission. Because if I'm primarily concerned about my own desires and my own interests, why would I want to suffer for anyone else? Why would I want to submit to anyone else or anything else? Why would I want to give up my freedom to pursue what I want when I want it and live under the rule and the command of another? The second, and I think maybe more subtle, but also um, kind of maybe it, it affects us even more at times, effect is that we, we actually make the mission serve us. We make it about us. If I am primarily concerned about my own desires and my own interests, then the mission becomes about me getting what I want. And this can lead us to that manipulative evangelism that we talked about, because then we turn people into projects. Because when I see gospel proclamation as a means of my own accomplishment, my own achievement, my own accolades, then I do it differently. Because when I need you to say yes to the gospel in order for me to be okay, then I have just made the mission about myself. Paul is not out for his own gain. He's not out to get something for himself. He does not reject his ministry. He doesn't make it serve him. But he pursues this mission as a servant to Jesus, the gospel, and to others. Now, this way of thinking, of submitting ourselves to the needs of others, and actually living our life as if it's not our own, it is not common to this cultural moment. As modern Western people, we believe that our freedom to choose whatever we want, whenever we want, is an extremely important value. And that we should not then submit ourselves to anyone else's desires, anyone else's interests, because that would be an impediment to our choice. That's the cultural narrative that we live under. And as a result, you'll hear people then talk like this. They'll advocate for individuals to never commit themselves to anyone or to anything. If you get married, people will say, you will lose yourself. And if your marriage starts to demand too much of you, rather than see that as an opportunity for growth, an opportunity to grow and, and, and change yourself, then the answer is just to bail. Don't stay in the marriage if it doesn't make you immediately happy and give you exactly what you want. This way of thinking sees commitment as a hindrance. Kids, church, sacrificial types of friendship, they all get in the way of things like careers and vacations and financial goals. And the basic assumption behind this way of thinking is that we are most free when we enjoy whatever we want, whenever we want. And any commitment to others becomes an obstacle to our freedom. Theologian Bruce Ware wrote about this modern concept of freedom in this way. He says, freedom is not what our culture tells us it is. Freedom is not my deciding from the urges and the longings of my sinful nature to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, with whom I want to do it. According to the Bible, that is bondage, not freedom. Rather, true freedom is living as Jesus lived, for he is the freest human who ever lived. In fact, he is the only fully free human being who has ever lived, and one day we will be set fully free when we always and only do the will of God. So, what is freedom? Bruce Ware asks. Amazingly, Jesus' answer is this. Freedom is submitting. Submitting fully to the will of God, to the words of God, and to the work that God calls us to do. What many think of as freedom today, the Bible calls bondage. And what Dutch philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard called the aesthetic life. What many fail to realize is that we are not always free and rational thinkers. We're not nearly as free and rational as we think we are. When we choose our own pleasure over and over again, that result is not freedom. It is slavery. 
We become enslaved to the whim of our desires, to the trends of our cultural moment, to the impulse of whatever I want right now. We are actually most free when we choose what and who we want to submit ourselves to. We're actually more free when we decide to live for the good of someone else and for the mission of God. The threefold submission that Bruce Ware references to God's will, words, and work are also similar to what Paul's talking about here, to be a servant to Jesus, the message of the gospel, and to others. And one quality we want to adopt as uh, gospel-motivated missionaries, as we kind of adopt Paul's mentality, is that we want to know that we are not our own. Now, this gets very real very quickly if we actually do this because it is often not convenient to live on mission. Our neighbor's needs don't always arrive on our timetable. And if you're a parent, then that little human that you've been called the disciple does not just wait until you feel ready to respond to their big emotions. Inherent to the call to follow Jesus and the ensuing call to join him in his mission is the reality that we're not our own. We are servants of Jesus, his gospel, and other people. The second aspect of this, the second mentality we want to adopt is that that we see that we know the mystery, that we know the mystery. Paul uses the language of mystery and revelation a lot in the book of Ephesians and in this part of the letter. He has this basic understanding that our collective vision of the world, our sight, has been blinded. It's been blinded by our desires for the flesh, by the direction of the world, by the devices of the evil one. And so he writes in verse 5 that the mystery was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. It was hidden. It was not made known. And that's, that's still true for some in our generation. We do have the privilege, though, of having it been revealed through Jesus. So it says, but now has been revealed in his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So in verses 4 and 5, we kind of get this Revelation sandwich, if you will. If you like images of sandwich, you'll appreciate this. Verse 4 is the mystery made known by Revelation to Paul. And then in verse 5, it's been made known to the apostles and the prophets. And then in between the two, we see that it has not been made known to previous generations. There is a veil. There is a hiddenness at times. However, it has now been made known. The revelation that is being uncovered is something that was previously hidden. That's what revelation means. Something that was hidden is now uncovered. Like when you find your keys under that pile of papers on your counter, it has now been revealed. Well, in this case, the mystery that's being revealed is in verse 6, that God made a plan to redeem both Jews and Gentiles together in the same body through Jesus. So the first part of being a gospel-motivated missionary is to know the mystery that God came to save all who would respond through faith. And then to keep coming back to it, to keep reminding ourselves of it over and over again, to keep understanding it. The gospel message is not just something that converts the unbeliever, but it convicts and it compels the believer as well. The mystery that has been revealed is not something that we ever graduate from. We don't ever move on from it as if we're moving on to higher things, but it actually is the center of gravity for our faith. It is the core message around which everything else orbits. And so one of my goals as your pastor and when I preach is to see the mystery myself first, to investigate it, to understand it, to remind myself of its radical message, to have my doctrine and my life shaped by it. And in this way, the gospel is not so much just like a picture that we frame and put on a wall so that we can look at, but it is a frame through which we actually look to see the rest of the world. It's less like a picture and more like a window in this way. 
And one of the things that happens when the church starts to shrivel up and die is when the mystery that has been revealed kind of ends up like a black and white photo framed and put in a box that just gets pulled out every so often. But when the gospel becomes like a window, a frame through which we see the entire world in full color, then the church experiences renewal and revival. I mentioned this book earlier, Dynamics of Spiritual Life by Richard Lovelace. I've been really enjoying this book. You'll probably hear my re- me reference it a few more times before I finish. But in this book, he has this effort to provide this robust theology of renewal for the church. And he argues that a prerequisite of renewal is when God's people get a more clear picture of the gospel. And you actually would say then decline happens when we start to hide the gospel. We make assumptions about the gospel. We don't talk about it anymore. See, no generation is immune from the mystery becoming a mystery again. Part of the work of gospel-motivated missionaries is to continue uncovering the mystery for themselves, digging for more revelation, for more understanding. At its core, the aim of my preaching week in and week out is to help you see the revelation of Christ that has been given to us in the scriptures. If we want to be gospel-motivated missionaries in our present moment, then we must continue to return to the mystery that's been revealed, to study it, to savor it, to taste, and to see that it is good. And the third quality we're going to look at just flows naturally from the first. We make the mystery known. So first we uncover the mystery, or God uncovers it for us by the power of the Spirit, and then we make it known for others. That, that's why Paul is writing to them. That's what he's trying to do here in this letter. He's trying to help them see what he has seen. In verses 3 through 4, we get a bit of a purpose statement for the letter from Paul when he says that the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. That little phrase, as I have written briefly, is a reference to everything he's written up to this point. Chapters 1 and 2 is, is him explaining the mystery made known to, the, to these Ephesians. And his hope is that in verse 4, when you read this, so this is what he wants for them, when you read about this mystery that I'm telling you, that you will perceive my insight into this mystery of Christ, that you'll understand. He wants them to see what he sees, to know what he knows, that the mystery that was made known to him will be revealed to them as well. And he further writes about his calling in verse 8 to preach the gospel to the Gentiles so they would, uh, they would know the unsearchable riches of Christ to bring into light what was hidden. This is such a natural response for him. His thinking is, okay, this has been made known to me and now I want to make it known to you. I had dinner with a pastor from India this past week and I mean, he's, just, he's an incredible, incredible man with an incredible story. This pastor in India, grew up in the slums, in a, in a slum of one of the cities in India. He had nothing to eat. His father died when he was very young, and at the age of three, his mother abandoned him and left him with his aunt and his uncle. His aunt and uncle already had their own kids, and they didn't have a lot of money, so they prioritized their kids before him, and so he often was out on the street, sleeping outside at night, doing whatever he could to find food, doing whatever he could to get an education, and over the course of time, this caused bitterness in him and frustration in him. And when he was about the age of 15, he was out in the streets and he found out where his mother was living. He found out that his mother was still alive, that she had met another man and she had moved on with his life or her life. And so he was frustrated with her. He was angry with her. And he had devised this plan that he was going to go and kill her and then kill himself. That's how he decided he was going to end all of this. And as he is in the street, someone walks up to him and offers to pray for him and invites him to church. And so it's three days before Sunday, and so he thought to himself, you know what? I'll wait three days. I'll go to church on Sunday, 
And if nothing happens, then I'm just going to go through with my plan as it was. So three days later, he goes to church. And as he walks into the room and he hears people worshiping and singing, all of a sudden, his dead heart was made alive. And he saw this vision of Jesus come before him. He walked into that room filled with all the pain of the world, the feelings of abandonment from his mother, the anger at her for having left him, the frustration with aunts and uncles who didn't care for him, the, the, the recognition of inequity and the poverty that was all around him. He came in with all of this pain. And as he was made alive through the gospel, he saw this vision of Jesus wrap his arms around him. And in that moment, he, he knew there was, there was no more fear of abandonment. He knew that Jesus was welcoming him into this family of God. And he left there a changed man, completely different. I asked him while we were having dinner with him, I said, when did you know, when did you feel called into this ministry you have? And he just said, well, right away. I just immediately wanted other people to know what had been made known to me. And so he started going to slums and areas around the city to tell others about what had been made known to him. One slum said, don't come in here. Don't tell us about this stuff. If you come in here, you won't leave alive. Well, this slum now begs him to come back and tell other generations about Jesus. This pastor now leads a church planting movement in India of about 600 house churches with over 5,000 people because he wanted others to know what God had made known to him. Now, we're not all like the Apostle Paul. We're not all like this pastor in India, and we don't all have the same calling. We don't all need to become missionaries or pastors or lead church planting movements. That's not what I'm saying. But if you have received the revelation of the gospel, if it has been made known to you, then it is no less a miracle in your life than it was for this pastor in India or it was for Paul, and we can adopt the characteristic of making the mystery known to others. The pastor from India, he's a no-nonsense kind of guy, and in this conversation, several points, I just kind of felt put to shame by his just zeal for the gospel, his zeal for others, and his just kind of -of matter-of-fact way of thinking about his life. And I just, at one point he said, you know, Jesus gave us one mission as his people. As amazing as other things are, amazing as things like prophecy and healing are, they are not the priority. They are not the mission that Jesus gave us. He gave one mission to his disciples, and it is to make disciples. That is our calling, to make the revelation known that was made known to us. And here is where I think bad theology becomes a problem for us. Because when we hear about making disciples, if we don't read about the way that Paul views this, then we can start to think that our role is actually to convert people. But that is the Spirit's work. Our part in making disciples is simply to make the mystery known, to uncover what has been hidden from view. And let me give you just two simple ways that we can do that in our own life, how we can make the mystery known. The first is to talk openly about the ways that God is revealing himself to you. I've come to really appreciate little diagnostic questions in conversations with others that can spark more conversation. I think a good check-in question to ask others is, what is something that God's been teaching you lately? It's a helpful little question. And when people are given the opportunity to think about that question, almost everyone that I've asked it to has some kind of answer if they take time to think about. Whatever God is teaching you, if it is consistent with what he's revealed about himself in the scriptures, and it is founded and grounded in the good news of the gospel, then that is God helping you see the mystery revealed. And that is something you can share with others. 
Now, it doesn't need to be forced. It doesn't need to be awkward. You don't need to find ways to like Jesus juke it into every conversation. But if we're engaging with people about more than just surface level conversations, which hopefully we are, God wants us to do that with each other, to care for each other enough, to ask more than just about the weather and whatever sports team is like losing in Minnesota these days, right? Like we just, we're called to like ask about some things more than that. When we do that, then we have opportunity to, to respond with things God's revealing to us. You don't need to apologize about what God is helping you see more clearly in the world. And you can help others see that more clearly as well. You get the privilege of bringing into light what has been hidden for others. So take time to ask yourself that question. What has God been teaching me? And then here's a challenge for you. Share that with one person this week. Ask yourself tonight before you go to bed, write it down, what's something God's been teaching me with just one person this week. Share that. Not in a forced or awkward way. Not with any expectation of their response. Okay, it doesn't matter how they respond to it. That's not your job. But just make a habit of sharing what God is revealing to you. Now, the second and even more simple way to do this is to make sure that the people in your life know that you love and follow Jesus. Maybe even write down the name of the 20 people that you are most commonly in contact with and just ask yourself, do they know that I follow Jesus? And here's why that's important. The reality is that in our urban 21st century environment, many people in our city, maybe you would argue most people in our city, have never had a positive interaction with an evangelical Christian. Or at least they don't know they have because they don't know that the person was a Christian that they were interacting with. Cinema and television have often portrayed Christians as foolish and ignorant. Many of the loudest and most outspoken Christians you'll see on like news cycles are very politically charged, so this becomes the picture in their minds. So people in our city default to negative and at best neutral assumptions about Christians. Well, you can help to change that narrative for them. This is something that you would maybe call a pre-evangelistic step, to help someone have a positive experience with a Christian. So that when they hear about Jesus, they think about you instead of the guy in the news or Angela from the office. So ask yourself, if people in your life know about whether you follow Jesus. Now, I'm not saying, again, you need to be awkward or forced about it. Don't go and send a memo to your entire department tomorrow. It's not what I'm asking you to do. But when someone asks you about what we did this weekend, you can tell them you went to church. You can talk about it. You can talk about our mission to renew weary lives through relationship with Jesus and why that's compelling to you. And if they ask more, then you can share about why you have hope in Jesus and why he has changed your life. Gospel-motivated missionaries want to make known what was made known to them, knowing that conversion is not their responsibility, but we bring into light what others have previously had hidden. Now, the fourth and final of these qualities is we live with confidence in God's love. Kind of right close to the end of this passage, we see why Paul can live so freely. Even though he's a servant of others, even though he doesn't live for himself, he lives with a lightness and a freedom that is evident. He's not concerned about his imprisonment. He doesn't care about his sufferings. He is happy to live for the needs of others because he knows the initiative love of God. In verses 11 and 12, he writes, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word this there refers to the revelation of God about Jesus. The revelation that God is redeeming his people through the sacrifice of Christ. It happened according to the eternal purpose of God. Okay, this was not plan B for him. 
This was not just something that was forced upon God to solve the problem, but when he looked ahead from eternity past, seeing the need of humanity to be redeemed, he devised a plan that Jesus would come to be the Christ who would die so that we could live. This is God's initiative love. And Paul can live with freedom and lightness because he knows this eternal love of God. He has confidence in it. He, he sees that it's been realized in Christ Jesus, in whom, it says in verse 12, through Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. God has come near in the person of Jesus. And through Christ, we have access to the living God. There's no need to be shy about that. No need to be afraid of that. The eternal God of the universe desired relationship with you. He made it possible to live in harmony with him through Christ. And he has revealed this good news to us by his spirit. Because of God's love in Christ, there's no fear anymore. These barriers for mission, they can be overcome. Are you afraid when you think about the mission that people will reject you? Good news. Jesus was rejected as well, and he did that so that you can be accepted by the only one whose approval actually matters. Are you afraid that you will suffer because of this mission? Well, you can know that Jesus suffers with you. You're not alone in your suffering. He suffered on the cross so that you could be made whole, and even if we suffer here, we know that it is in service of a greater mission and that one day all will be made right. Are you afraid that you're going to be a lousy witness? Well, good news, it doesn't all depend on you. God is the one who took the initiative. He's the one who reveals the mystery by the power of his spirit. And we are called simply to be a faithful and clear witness. There's nothing you can do to mess up this beautiful revelation that God has brought. And are you afraid that you won't do enough in the mission and that God will reject you? Good news. There is no amount of success required for you to be okay with God. Your eternal security does not depend on how good you are at being a witness. But because of your eternal security, you can have boldness, you can have confidence in your access to God, which comes through the work of Christ. It's his work on your behalf, not your success as a mystery revealer. See, we live with all sorts of fears and concerns when it comes to joining God in his mission. But in Paul here, we see four qualities of a gospel-motivated missionary that we can adopt together. In the end, we are simply revealing to others what has been revealed to us. And what if we gave up our striving? What if we gave up thinking it all depends on us? What, what if we gave up the priority of just our own desires? What if we just did our best to make known what was hidden? How might that change the way that we participate in God's mission together here at River City Church? Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.